Spiritual Guide to Politics. I am Liz Philippos, and I'm here to offer an expanded perspective into this moment in our collective political lives so that we come to a deeper awareness of our capacity to transform and transcend the present paradigm as agents of transformation. Each week, I talk with creative leaders about their spiritual understanding of the current political moment the possibilities for the well-being of our planetary lives and the life of the planet itself. They inspire us to know that the personal is political and the political is spiritual. There are tremendous possibilities for transformation when we really come to know this. Today, I'm so glad to welcome Rianne Eisler. Her work since the 1980s has been on the concept of partnership societies. Her work shows in many different ways how we can construct a more equitable, sustainable, and less violent world based on partnership rather than domination. She is a pioneer in international human rights, the rights of women and children, and a pioneer in the research that she does currently with the Center for Partnership Studies, showing us the way that caring economies, economies based on nurturing and caring for each other, thrive and are more profitable than economies based on domination. So, Rianne, from the Chalice in the Blade in 1987, to the Center for Partnership Studies that you founded and direct today. Partnership societies have been a central concept of your work, and so I would love it if you would tell us a bit about partnership societies and and your work on it. Well, I have come to the conclusion in the course of three decades and more now of research that we really need a new language, uh, new social categories, new narratives about social possibilities. Because if you look at the conventional social categories, right, left, religious, secular, eastern, western, northern, southern, and so on, you can find uh, repressive and violent societies in all these categories. And my research was really designed to answer Uh, a very pivotal question, which is what kind of social configuration supports our human capacities for consciousness, caring, and creativity, or alternately, because we also have those capacities, for insensitivity, cruelty, and destructiveness. Mm. And it became very apparent that that question could not be answered through looking at society through these very fragmenting lenses of conventional categories, which a colleague of mine actually uh, said, well, they're really weapons of mass distraction, (laughs) because they fail to take into account uh, the majority of humanity, women and children in any serious way. And so 
my system of classification, which is what I call the partnership domination uh, social scale, looks at two ends of that scale, one the domination system and the other one the partnership system. This is a classification system that transcends these conventional categories. So when we're talking about a partnership system as contrasted to a domination system, we're talking about a particular social configuration. First, it is a more democratic rather than authoritarian top-down structure in both the family and the state. And I emphasize that because, as I said, most social categories just don't even touch on family. The second part of this configuration is, again, something that's ignored in the conventional studies and the conventional categories about society, which is that rather that, as in the nomination system, ranking one half of humanity, the male half, over the female half, the partnership system really is a system in which there is more gender equity, in which so-called feminine characteristics and and activities such as caring, caregiving, and nonviolence are highly valued rather than devalued, and they're highly valued not only in women and men, but also in social and economic policy. And the fourth, because these are all interconnected, mutually supporting components, is that in contrast to the domination system where we have all of these familiar narratives about, well, rankings of top-down domination, what I call hierarchies of domination, where power is defined as power over, and whether it's man over man, man over woman, race over race, religion over religion, uh, nation, nation over nation, etc., that that's just how it is. Uh, either divinely or genetically ordained, Mm -hmm. uh, we have narratives that recognize our capacity for, well, for anti-human and anti-Earth behaviors, but really don't consider these inevitable, and that instead really present a narrative, as I do in The Chalice and the Blade, showing that actually, if you look at the whole span of our cultural evolution... Really, we have millennia of orientation to the partnership side of the continuum, starting with what's now being documented by scholars with foraging societies that really we were for about 99% of our human history. Mm. I'm struck by a number of things that you're saying. And one is that you see the possibilities, even in the midst of a domination paradigm, for instance, that you're focused on the possibilities of transformation and the possibilities of a a shift in gender relations. And so I wonder if you could just say a bit more about that, about masculinity, for instance, and what do you mean by femininity in both men and women? I think that so much of the critique of um, injustice and violence has really focused on just that, on deconstruction, on critiquing. And you're quite right, Liz. My work, yes, it does 
deconstruct, but it's mostly focused on reconstruction by identifying what are the cornerstones we have to build in order to support the more peaceful and not ideal, but certainly less violent, more sustainable, more equitable society. And one of these cornerstones has to do with how a society constructs the roles and relations of the two basic halves of humanity in terms of form, male and female. And this is ignored, and yet that is so basic. Uh, For example, if you look at our economic systems, whether they're capitalist or socialist, they're really guided by what I call a gendered system of values in which in neither Marx nor Smith's, you know, the the fathers, so to speak, of both capitalist and socialist theory, there isn't anything about caring about the enormous value of economically of caring for people starting in early childhood, which they relegated as just women's work, or to caring for our Mother Earth, for keeping a clean and healthy environment, be it in our homes or our planet. It's just not there. So in my book, The Real Wealth of Nations, I really address this enormous need. You were talking about masculinities specifically, and of course the domination system in order to rank one type of human over another type of human, you have to have very rigid gender stereotypes, don't you? Mm -hmm. So masculinity in the domination system is defined in negative way as not being like a woman, which means not being, quote, soft, caring, empathic, etc., which is nonsense because some women can be very cruel and some men can be very caring. These are stereotypes that really deprive both women and men of their full humanity. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned the real wealth of nations, and um, one of the things that I really appreciate about that book is that you tell us about possibilities, but then you also show us clear evidence that caring economies are profitable, do make money, if that's our measurement of how successful something is. Could you talk a bit about some of those examples of caring societies, caring economies that exist right now? If we really look at what's happening in our world through this lens of the partnership domination social scale, what you see is that, yes, we're in the midst of a massive regression to domination, and it isn't just in the United States, but that is really to counter a strong movement towards partnership in many ways, mostly on the ground, but also in terms of changing of what we perceive as valuable. And that's a very, very important part of economic and cultural transformation. Mm -hmm. So we, first of all, look at our metrics through the Caring Economy campaign, which was inspired by the Real Wealth of Nations, and we develop uh, a new way of measuring economic health that is very different from GDP, what we call social wealth economic indicators. And these indicators are actually also very different from most other so-called GDP alternatives. And what I mean by all that is GDP not only 
includes as productive activities that harm and take life, like selling cigarettes and then the resulting medical expenses and the resulting funeral expenses. They're all great for GDP. Mm-hmm. But not only do they have negatives in as positives in GDP, but GDP fails to take into account the enormous economic value of the work of caring for people and caring for nature. And social wealth economic indicators do take into account that work, which at this point, and I say at this point because we need to change this, is unpaid. We need to find ways to reward that work. And the social wealth economic indicators uh, really show the economic value of that work. So if you look at nations like Sweden, Finland, Norway, Denmark, they are very often call themselves caring societies. They're not really socialist. They also have a healthy market economy, but they have very caring policies. They invest far, 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 far more than the United States in caring for people, starting in early childhood, in uh, helping families care for children, in very generous paid parental leave for both mothers and fathers, and they both have to take it. Fathers in in a family where there is a a father, uh, if the father doesn't take it, nobody gets it. Very heavy investment in high-quality early childhood education, of course, Mm -hmm. universal health care. These are all really investments in human capacity development, and especially for our age of post-industrial era, of automation, robotics, uh, artificial intelligence, we had better invest in human capacity, if only for economic reasons. You know, I'm, I'm regularly struck by the conversation around elections that has nothing to do with the well-being of the majority of the population. So can you speak to that? What are we missing? Well, we're missing the crux of the matter. Look at so-called trickle-down economics. I mean, the whole, the word of trickle, you just get the trickle. It isn't really new. It's just a kind of a replay of the notion, uh, say, from feudal times, that those at the bottom should content themselves with the scraps falling from the opulent tables of those on top. We're talking about domination economics, reinventing themselves in different forms. And once we get this, then we can stop having this conversation about capitalism versus socialism, because the two mass applications of socialism in the former Soviet Union and in China resulted in a top-down in economics, didn't it? Mm-hmm. Yes. I mean, again, the domination economics. So that, that what, what, what we're talking about really is a whole new social and economic paradigm. And that's not easy to communicate, especially in our age when uh, of social media, you know, of tweets. We're talking about really complex psychosocial and economic connections that take into account matters such as gender, such as what children experience and observe early on, which we know from neuroscience affects nothing less than how our brains develop. It's hard to communicate in one sentence, but if I have to communicate it in one sentence, what we need is the guiding values of both society and economics need to be 
caring for people starting in early childhood and caring for nature because that's our life support system. And you're quite right. You tune in to the latest news, whether it's in a, on a so-called progressive or regressive channel, just not even, even close to talking about this. There's the agents of domination or the leaders or the people interested in dominating people. And there seems to be also then we're socialized as a collective to be dominated, to receive it somehow. And that really is very much connected again with what we're learning from neuroscience, which has informed my latest work, a book in progress now. We know from neuroscience that what children experience and observe in their early years affects nothing less than how their brains, how our brains develop. And this is before our critical faculties are even anywhere on the horizon, okay? Because, you know, we don't get those until much later. So we have to start really at the bottom. Uh, They observe gender relations, beginning with the difference between male and female is equated with superiority or inferiority, dominating or being dominated, being served or serving. That can then be applied to all other differences, right? Race, religion. If they're in a rigid domination household, they observe or experience the use of violence for one person to impose their will on another. That, too, can then be extrapolated into not only intimate relations, but all the way to international relations. We've got to start connecting the dots and using the knowledge that we have today, uh, which really makes sense of a lot of things that seem random and disconnected. It seems then that there is personal work to be done for us to take seriously the project of unraveling domination in our own psyches, in our own neurocircuitry, creating households, families, collectives that raise children in a different way. Well, I think it's so interesting because our next uh, webinar with Gary Barker, who is the president of Promundo, which is an international men's uh, organization, its aim is to reexamine and change our current dominator conceptions of masculinity in which masculinity is defined as not being like a woman, you know, not being soft, not being caring, not doing, quote, women's work, which a lot of men are beginning to do, like fathers who are diapering and feeding babies, right? So we are talking about something that is very much something that all of us can do and need to do. And at the same time, we also need to have education, caring for self, caring for others, and caring for nature. My book on education, Tomorrow's Children, deals with some of this. Women are working with enlightened men, with men who understand that domination, masculinity, well, it's been a disaster for men. They're supposed to give nothing less than their bodies, their lives, because some guy on top wants more real estate. I mean, that's just the beginning of the problem for Mm -hmm. men. So we're talking about redefining what it means to be human. And it's exciting. 
It's not easy, but together we can do it. I mean, if you look at what's happening on the ground, so much of what's happening challenges domination in one way or another, whether it's racism, whether it's sexism, whether it's economic injustice. It's all looking at pieces of what really are inherent in domination systems. So there's also a kind of expanded point of view that we are called to see. We get caught up in the details, but there is a bigger picture. And if we were to see from a bigger picture, from the perspective of a paradigm, then we could see how these details are working something much bigger out. I started to introduce this frame in my book, The Chalice and the Blade, which, by the way, this year celebrated its 30th anniversary Mm. with its 57th printing in the United States, and it's now in 27 foreign editions. So it's it's still very, very timely. But we also have a website, which is centerforpartnership.org, and you can find out so much more about this. That's great. I do hope that people will go to your website and learn more about it. Chalice and the Blade is often referred to as a spiritual text. Sometimes that word is associated with your work. So could you could you talk a little bit about you know how that might be part of your work, a spiritual perspective? Oh, very much so. And actually, all my books have a spiritual perspective in the sense of putting love into action. You know, that's how I think of partnership, spirituality, as a way that we can both connect with the loving energies and really bring them into our societies and our lives. And what I want uh, to really have my work be is tools, not only for personal transformation, which includes a different view of spirituality, not a view of spirituality as some kind of high power that controls us and that we better please and kowtow to and obey, but spirituality, as I said, is putting love into action right here on earth. Well, and what you describe as uh, kowtowing to a spiritual authority is just an expression of domination society. It isn't really an expression of an expanded point of view. Our conception both of what is in the other world, so to speak, you know, the powers that govern the universe, as well as our conception of what's possible here on Earth, can change, has changed in the domination direction, unfortunately, over the last 5,000 years. But we can change it in the partnership direction, not to go back to any so-called good old days, but to really use everything we have learned throughout history, to move to that not ideal, not perfect, but that more equitable, sane, sane and humane and sustainable way of living. Yes. Is there something true about us? Is there a truth that's at the core of your work? Well, I think it's very interesting because one of the reasons I became so interested in findings from neuroscience, among other disciplines, is because what we now are learning from neuroscience is that, if anything, our capacities for empathy, our capacity for caring, these are actually wired into, quote, human nature. But whether 
have the expression of these capacities or they're inhibited or fragmented or distorted really largely, again, depends on the kinds of cultures we create. Cultures are human creation. In this, we really have to pay special attention to those cultural institutions, family, our intimate relations, gender, that really are so formative. I know that you continue to work at Center for Partnership Studies and that there's always something new happening with your work. You've mentioned a forthcoming book. I know you were traveling recently. So could you just share with us things that are coming up for you when people go to your website? I really encourage people to go to centerforpartnership.org. For one thing, our webinars, they're for free, and we certainly invite people to find out about them and to tune in. What does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? And what does that have to do with the kind of world we live in? I recently spoke in Chile. I was invited to a conference on the future sponsored by the president of Chile. The theme of the conference was consciousness, and my theme was shrinking or expanding consciousness, and I think that we've posted that. So for people who are interested in consciousness, that might be of interest. I just want to mention another part of your work is working with governments and official agencies. So do you find a receptivity among governments to your partnership societies paradigm? Only to a point, because unfortunately, their modus operandi is are really like grazing animals. Is just what's happening right now. And what I'm talking about is a long-term integrated progressive political agenda, like the agenda of those pushing us back, who always, whether it was Hitler in Germany, whether it's Khomeini in Iran, whether it's the Taliban, whether it was Stalin, focus on pushing us back to this, quote, traditional family, which they recognize that it's really a code word, isn't it? for an authoritarian, rigidly male-dominated, highly punitive family that prepares people again and again and again to accept domination systems the way things are. It does come back to what we do. And when I say we, I suppose I'm just referring to people who are ready to see something different emerge or prepared to give up old ways of being seeing that they don't serve us, they don't serve our highest interests, who are available for a shift and a change that we all have to make, isn't it, in our families, in our personal lives. We all have to figure out how else to be humans, yeah? Well, absolutely. And we're talking about changes in our consciousness, as you mentioned, but also how these lead to action, and not only action in our own immediate environments where we have much more influence than we think. We can dissent. We can speak up. Our voices need to be heard, but also in joining together to really get our organizations that we belong to, the businesses where we work, to focus on, say, paid parental leave, on early childhood education, the reality, which is worldwide, women are the mass of the world's poor and the poorest of the poor. And it's not only job discrimination, it's because most of these women 
are or were either full or part-time caregivers. We need to reward that work, and we can. Like, for example, we can have a caregiver tax credits. There are many economic and social inventions. And this was exciting about this work. Yeah, it asks us to sort of leave our comfort zones, but our comfort zones are getting more and more uncomfortable, aren't they? So this is really exciting, looking at what is possible, what are the cornerstones for building a partnership society, and how do we together make changes? Everything we do makes a difference. You know, none of us can do everything, but every one of us can do something. Well, I thank you so much for everything that you've shared today. Thank you so much to the listeners. You've been listening to Rianne Eisler talking about partnership societies. You've been listening to A Spiritual Guide to Politics here on KPFK Radio. My name is Liz Filippos. Thank you so much for listening. I'm so glad you joined us. Until next time.